Germany has just registered its one millionth refugee. And these people want to send them home. Tens of thousands of Syrian refugees who probably, in many cases, not probably, who are definitely, in many cases, ISIS aligned. This is going to be the great Trojan horse. At least two people have died in a fire at an overcrowded Greek migrant camp. The dead are reported to be a woman and a child. We want Sweden to stay Swedish. The question is whether conflict is now going to be a permanent part of this new world. Hello and welcome to The People's Podcast with me, Jay Yogendran. Today we're going to be speaking to Professor Robert Thomas from the University of Manchester uh, about asylum-seeking law. Firstly, Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Um, could you just introduce yourselves uh, for our listeners? So, my name's Robert Thomas. I'm a law professor at the University of Manchester and I do research into tribunals and I did a, a book on asylum tribunals and how they work and that was published in 2011. And I've done research into um, immigration judicial reviews, which is another way of challenging immigration decisions, asylum decisions as well, by through the court. So could you sort of give us a brief overview of how the asylum-seeking process uh, would work in the UK? Well, I mean, it works in, in this way. Um, there's a right to seek asylum. So someone comes into the country from outside, typically from Africa and Asia and some South America, and they will at some stage make an asylum claim. They might make it on arrival, or they might have been in the UK for a period of time, and that, that's really the start of the process. They mm-hmm. make an asylum claim with the Home Office, and the Home Office will interview the applicant and um, collect information about their case, and then the Home Office will make a decision one way or the other. But as I said, they could claim asylum when they first enter, um, you know, at a, a port of entry or an airport, or they could have been in the UK for some period of time and then mm-hmm. claim asylum. The Home Office will make a decision, and some of those decisions are in favour of um, the applicants. Um, some people are granted asylum or refugee status mm-hmm. straight away, And if someone's refused, then they can challenge that decision. They have a right of appeal to a tribunal, and that's like a judicial body. People get legal aid so that they can have have a lawyer, depending on how good their case is. Mm -hmm. And then the tribunal will um, examine their case and they'll present evidence. And the Home Office typically will defend its, its initial refusal decision. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that in broad brush, that's like the overall process. There's lots of different aspects yeah. of it for the different types of people seeking asylum as well. And so what sort of factors um, play into the Home Office's decision whether or not to accept or reject an asylum application? That's, that's really at the core of the whole like decision-making mm-hmm. process. I think what we need to do is to distinguish between two types of factors. There's one set of factors which concerns the individual claimant, right? What's mm-hmm. their position? What's their background history? Um, what type of treatment have they received in the past? Have they been threatened? Why are they seeking asylum? What's their background? Mm-hmm. And 
This generally goes to what's called their credibility. Mm-hmm. Is this person telling the truth? Does their story, you know, stack up? So that's like one general type of factor, okay. the personal credibility of the asylum seeker. A second type of factor is concerns the general situation in the relevant country. Would this person be at risk of mm-hmm. persecution, torture, you know, serious harm? Would they be at risk if returned to their country of origin? So the decision maker has got to look at the individual story of the claimant and to decide whether or not that's true. The decision maker has also got to look at the general country conditions. What is mm-hmm. life like? in that country for certain types of people. Does the evidence show that there's a risk on return? So those are the two general types of factors, Mm -hmm. the individual circumstances of the person concerned and the general country condition. And if the decision maker find that they're telling the truth and there would be a risk of persecution of torture on return, Mm then they have to be given asylum or refugee status. And so in your time of studying this, how have you noticed the process evolving? I mean, if you go years and years back, in the 1980s, for instance, there were about 4,000 asylum claims lodged per year, and it was much more informal than it is now. Yeah. In the 1990s and the 2000s, the number of asylum claims increased substantially. There was one year in the early 2000s when the number of people claiming asylum per year was over 100,000. Wow. And, yeah, so the numbers really built up, and the Home Office basically became completely overwhelmed with applications, and there were were long delays. Also, there were pressures, political pressures, on governments to try and limit this. So there's been all manner of different types of changes Mm -hmm. to try to um, deal with asylum make it a more ordered process yeah. but then there's on top of that there's been political changes to try and limit the numbers of people claiming mm-hmm. asylum on top of that of course um the european union has been developing its common european asylum process and it's made regulations and directives about you know developing a coherent you know europe-wide asylum process that that's that's a, a key issue going forward about the UK's position within that. But So basically, overall, there, uh, there's been tons and tons of law made mm-hmm. to change and reform the asylum process. And the major argument from the UK government, from the Home Office, is that um, the, the process is basically being abused by people who don't really qualify for asylum, mm-hmm but they're using it as a backdoor route of entry into the country. So that's one side of the argument. And the other side of the argument is, well, the more people have been claiming asylum because the world is a very troubled place Mm -hmm. in in some um, parts of it. Afghanistan, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, Zimbabwe, these are all, you know, really troubled parts of the world. And, um, you know, there's been the rise of smugglers and traffickers and bringing people mm-hmm. in to, to the country. So as a result of that, the system has, has changed and it, it almost certainly will continue to change because of the, you know, the, the dynamics in play. 
So you mentioned a bit about the political pressure um, that has started to have a bit of an impact on asylum seeking. Um, one of those big sort of political events is, of course, Brexit. What sort of consequences do you think that that will have on the process of seeking asylum in the UK? That's a very good question, and it's difficult to give a clear answer because post the general election of December 2019, we're, we're much more certain that Brexit is going to happen, mm -hmm. but we're, we're not quite so certain about the details of it. I, I think what what is clear is that there's likely to be change, there's likely to be upheaval, and it depends upon the ultimate content of Brexit. So, you know, the worst case scenario is that there's a, there's a no-deal Brexit, mm -hmm. and that would have a major impact, for instance, on refugee families that are separated. Another aspect of Brexit would be, um, well, what, what do you do when someone has come into the UK via Italy or via France? At the moment, there's this system called the Dublin system, but the basic principle is that people should seek asylum in their first safe country. Mm -hmm. And that principle is implemented. So if someone comes into the UK via France, UK authorities will return that person to France, and it's for the French um, government to make a decision on asylum. And if there's a no-deal Brexit, then it's much more difficult for the UK to do that, mm -hmm. because it will no longer be a member state of the European Union. And um, to enforce that principle, like, you know, the first safe country principle, it's necessary to have access to uh, the, the Eurodac database, and that would end with Brexit. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about how, what this will actually look like. Of course, yeah. Um, but it won't really be sorted out until the, the, the final, you know, arrangements are agreed between mm -hmm. the UK government and the European Union. And so, in, in terms of looking forward, what, what reforms in your experience would you suggest um, are necessary for a better immigration system? Is, is, is it to do with separating the politics and the law itself, or are there other sort of reforms that you think would be really beneficial for the process? There's a number of things that, that could be done. I mean, the traditional criticism of the Home Office has been that it makes poor quality decisions, mm -hmm. that um, people, the people who, the civil servants who make decisions, that they're not always as experienced or well-trained as they should be. Mm -hmm. And that then, linked to that, the wider criticism is that there's a culture of suspicion. Mm. And of course, those are decisions made by civil servants working within the Home Office, they're answerable to a minister, and so there's that direct link between administrative decision-making and political pressures. Mm -hmm. And in other areas of government, there's separation. You know, in other areas of government, we hand um, decisions over to independent um, decision-makers, mm -hmm. and we make um, decision-making like separate and and independent. Uh, that argument has been long suggested to government. It's never been implemented. No. Uh, so one key thing would be to improve the quality of decision-making. A second point would be to ensure that um, asylum seekers, when they appeal to the tribunal, to the judicial stage, 
that they've got good legal advice and good legal representation. And uh, there is legal aid available, but there are real pressures in how far that legal aid goes. And there's also concerns about the quality of some law firms who provide legal advice Mm -hmm. and legal representation. So that would be another thing um, to look at. Uh, I think more generally there's got to be a change in the style of debate because asylum is an area where human rights are very much in play. Mm -hmm. The most fundamental human rights. Asylum is about ensuring that people are not subject to torture or persecution. And of course there will be cases that, that don't qualify, but the real difficulty with asylum decision-making is um, it's just inherently difficult. Yeah. I mean, how do you know who's telling the truth and who isn't? How, how do you know what may or may not happen to somebody if they were returned to their country mm. of origin? And there, there, there's ways of, of guarding for that. But I think the, the general point I'm making is it's got to be accepted that asylum is about protecting people's fundamental human rights. And there's, and there's got to be a fair process, a fair way of doing that. Um, I think the, the, the other point linked to that is about the approach of the Home Office when it comes to enforcing immigration law. Um, sometimes the, the Home Office is very gung-ho. You know, it takes quite a hard line. It, it's, it has, for instance, it has removed people um, in defiance of court orders on from time to time. It's removed um, successful asylum seekers on occasion. There's a a report in the newspaper today about um, a Sudanese asylum seeker who was wrongly deported back to Sudan and then had to be flown back. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not an isolated case. So the Home Office has got to, you know, become better at its job as well. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I think a lot of our listeners will agree with everything you've just you've just proposed there. Um, and sort of finally to end, could you just tell us a little bit about your research that you've undertaken in this area? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I can I, I can talk about two projects. One was the, the book I did, um, which was on administrative justice and asylum adjudication. Mm-hmm. That was published in 2011, and to do that, I spent, oh, about two years observing appeals being heard in the in the tribunal. And um, what I really got from that is, is that this is a really difficult like, process. It's a really difficult decision-making mm-hmm. process. Uh, the, the evidence that decision-makers will have is very, uh, very often it's not clear-cut. And it's, it's just difficult, but decisions have to be made, and there's big pressure on decision-makers and judges in the tribunal, for instance. You know, there's lots of cases coming through the system. Uh, one of the other features with the process is that there's a very high level of legal challenge. So a case will be decided at, the, at the, the, what's called the first-tier tribunal. It will then be challenged, and you, and you have some cases that go round and round the system because... You know, new evidence comes to light, and or there's some mistake in the initial judge's um, decision. 
So I, I researched that, and um, uh, that was quite an enlightening um, study because how the law actually works in practice is very often difficult from our ideals mm -hmm. of how the law should work. So that was one um, study that I did. The second study I did, I've done more recently is a study of um, immigration judicial reviews. And that's not an appeal process, it's a way of um, going to the court um, to check the lawfulness of a decision. Okay. Uh, two points I would draw out from that. First of all, many judicial, immigration judicial reviews, not all of them, but a fair number of them, um, they're not of good quality. Mm -hmm. And some law firms make, some unscrupulous law firms um, that basically exploit vulnerable asylum seekers. Uh, there are, are, of course, and I would emphasize this, there's many, many immigration representatives who are absolutely excellent mm -hmm. and do, you know, really valuable, excellent work. Unfortunately, there's some law firms who just basically con artists. And that really needs to be clamped down mm, upon. Of course. Um, the other point I would make is that in another finding from the research is that in some cases, someone takes a judicial review, a legal challenge against the Home Office. They get a successful decision, they, they win their judicial review, and then the matter has to go back to the Home Office to be re-decided. But then the Home Office make exactly the same decision again. Wow. They completely ignore what the what the upper tribunal has decided, and that we ha we found clear evidence that that happens, and it, that's just pretty shocking mm -hmm. actually. That you have a government department that's bound by the law, the rule of law, and all of that, um, and it doesn't properly implement it doesn't properly take account of what the, the court the upper tribunal is saying and that's just inefficient it's contrary to the law and also it's costly uh, so you know the home office on the one hand it's got this pressure in terms of you know enforcing immigration law but on the other hand it is itself a major source of inefficiency and unnecessary cost. And you have, you know, we, as part of the research, we, we interviewed some people who've been through this and they've been trapped in this legal process mm -hmm. with their cases going on for years, wow. going round and round the system. Um, and, you know, it's almost like a Kafkaesque bureaucratic process mm. they just don't understand what's what's going on because there are so many different like uh, so many different avenues of, of legal challenge and one asylum seeker he was ultimately he was successful but he'd been refused so many times before that yeah. until one home office presenting officer took a look at his case and thought this guy is entitled to asylum mm -hmm. so you have these like bizarre situations that arise because, you know, as I've said, some people in the Home Office are not that well trained, they're, they're just going through the motions, mm -hmm. uh, but the Home Office is itself like a major source of inefficiency and uh, uh, un unnecessary cost. So those are the two projects 
Again, yeah. the book on Asylum Appeals, the more recent project, it was funded by the Nuffield Foundation on Immigration Judicial Reviews, and uh, both of these pieces of research have had impact. I mean, they are, they've been read quite widely by people within the system. Fantastic, yeah. Well, well, thank you, Robert, for taking the time to, to, to speak to us. I think it was really enlightening to hear your insights about the Home Office and what you think could be improved um, with, with, with the asylum-seeking process. Um, yeah, I think that's given us all a lot of food for thought, um, especially in the way that we look at how asylum um, cases are processed. Um, so, yeah, once again, thank you so much um, for taking the time out of your day to, to, to come and speak to us. That's fine. Thank you very much. We've heard a little bit about the asylum-seeking uh, process in the UK, uh, but now we wanted to focus on uh, unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. So uh, what we're going to do, is we're going to speak to some representatives from CORAM uh, to take us through this process. So, so to begin with, if you guys could just introduce yourselves for our listeners. So I'm Amy and I manage the CORAM's Young Citizens Programme. Perfect. Uh, I am Tlal and I go to Westminster Kingsway College and also I am a member of the Quorum Voice. Amazing, thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Taj and I'm from Bitford. I'm, I'm studying doing ESL course, um, one of young citizens at Quorum. Amazing. So before we begin, could you, for, for our listeners who don't know, could you introduce uh, what Quorum does and the Young Citizens Programme is? Quorum is the UK's oldest children's charity. Um, it was established in 1739 as the foundling hospital um, by Thomas Quorum. Uh, so that was for young children who couldn't be with their families. Mm-hmm. Um, it's now developed into a group of specialist charities and we help more than a million children and young people a year. Amazing, wow. Um, and we do different work, so direct work with young people, mm-hmm. but then we also do um, have education and information services and do research and practice development as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Young Citizens Programme started three years ago, and we ran various different projects with young people aged 16 to 25. Um, but then we sort of found that the group really wanted to focus on directly helping other young people, mm-hmm. so yeah. we developed the Young Citizens Training Programme with funding from Young Londoners Fund and John Lyons Charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that project, uh, we design and deliver workshops for other young people. Um, and they're co-designed with, with um, the Young Citizens members. Mm-hmm. When we were looking a bit into the charity, one of the phrases that came up was a UASC. So could you sort of explain what that is and, and what that means to you guys? So, yeah, so some people say you ask, but it stands for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Mm-hmm. So that means um, children who, children and young people up to the age of 18 who came to this country without their parents or, or another carer, and they are then cared for by their local authority. Um, and we try not to use the phrase you ask because it can be a bit dehumanising. So yeah. we try to use the full phrase like unaccompanied um young person or child or yeah a young person who came to the uk without without yes, family yeah, yeah. cool so taj what's your experience of the program been like so far is that a question about how he's found the young citizens project yes yes yeah um it's a lot it's really really like how 
help with me out a lot about my English, um, to find the friends, to mm-hmm. do a lot projects, um, to share my experience and to know about the other experience and all the issues they have and my I have it. Amazing, yeah. Wow. And, and, and do you feel it's been a really beneficial program um, to, to, to be a part of? It's really amazing. Mm. Um, it's really good. Fantastic. A bit of a broader question. What's sort of the stories that you've heard or, or the experiences that you guys have had of people arriving um, into the UK? What are sort of the biggest challenges that people face or you face yourselves? The, the biggest challenge for me was learning the language. Mm-hmm. And like the weather, finding halal food. Yes, of course. Were really challenging, but over the time I get used to it. So the biggest challenge for me, like to travel, I'm not using the train before in my country, and, mm. and underground it's really difficult. Yeah, you know? of course. But now, like I'm really fine. I'm good. Oh, and fantastic! Confident to speak in front of the people. Amazing. And so I presume, although you've spoken of these good examples, and this clearly is a really helpful support network, did, did you also receive some sort of bad support when you initially arrived outside of the charity? But if you come to the country um, unaccompanied without your family, mm-hmm. you're placed in the care of the local authority. They have to support you and find accommodation for you, either with a foster carer or um, in supported accommodation. Yeah. Um, yeah, they can both sort of talk about yeah. some good examples of the support they receive from their local authority and some not so good. Yeah, so. perfect. Yes, that would be amazing. Thank you. Actually, my, my social worker was really good to me. Oh, fantastic. And I, I found her like, like a mother. Oh, she lovely. Really helpful and I, I always receive like positive things. I haven't got any negative things. Mm-hmm. That's and, really good to hear. And also, uh, they, they helped me a lot. Like, they linked me to opportunities, and since then I, I got linked up and participating in new opportunities. Mm-hmm. I really uh, has improved my English. And so for Talal and Tad, in, in, in terms of looking forward, have you got sort of future ambitions or future plans that you hope to be able to realise? Yes, to be an um, IT engineer. Fantastic, wow. It's not easy, but yeah. That yeah, no, it sounds fantastic. Okay, for me, uh, my dream's job is to to become a car designer. Mm. And, and yeah, uh, I know it's going to take a long time, but but the, the flower doesn't grow in a day. Well, I, I hope to one day drive around in a car designed by you. Thank you. <laughs> and so... So, Amy, what form does the support that Coram provides take uh, for helping unaccompanied youth and other migrants? So, um, so the Young Citizens Programme, we have designed, developed workshops with the Coram's Young Citizens. Mm-hmm. So, and we've, we've designed them in collaboration with um, teams at Coram. So, mm-hmm. one is with our Coram Voice team, um, and that's on understanding the care system, because... Yeah, like a lot of young people don't really understand the system they're in when they yeah. arrive. And there's loads of different people that are helping them and they don't know what all these different roles do. Mm-hmm. And without knowing their rights, they can't really advocate for themselves. No, of so, course, yeah. So that, that workshop is all about trying to understand 
what the, how the care system works, what their rights and entitlements are, so that they can make change for themselves and fight for their rights in their in their from their local authority. Then there's another workshop we do in collaboration with the Migrant Children's Project team here, and that one's about the asylum process. And again, it's all about trying to understand your right, mm-hmm. um, understand how the system works, and and understand that it works for you. Not working against you. Like, yeah, so it's like working for you rather, yeah. yeah. So you have to try and um, to use it in that way and not feel like, yeah, it's not feeling like it's being done to you. Yeah, of course. Um, so they can take it like an active role in, in that system and understand mm-hmm. it. Because I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of young people, like they wouldn't have heard the word UF. No, yeah. They don't know what, yeah, again, like what all these different roles do. So, then, so we have that, um, so we run that workshop as well. And then we have a couple, one workshop we run with our creative therapy team here, and that's more around well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and the workshops try to kind of help people realise that they're not alone and that other people are going through similar things um, by hearing from each other. But also the uh, trainers, they, they've like been through the same things as them but got through to the other side. So as you've heard, they're like, they have big ambitions Yes, yeah. Some of them are already going to university now or have places next year. Oh, amazing. So they can say to the groups, like, we we were like you when we first got here. Mm-hmm. We didn't speak English and now we're, like, you know, on the path for our, to achieve our future ambitions. Um, so, yeah, so that's how, how our workshops run. Um, but then we also have other support that we run at Corps. So the Migrant Children's Project team have an advice email service. So people can email for advice about their immigration or asylum cases and they do some casework as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also, the, the um, our core and voice team provide advocates um, who are people who are independent from the local authority who can help make sure you are getting what you need and that you understand your rights. Um, and they have a helpline as well. So, so we link it, the Young Citizens Project kind of links in with the other services that we offer at Corps for unaccompanied um, young people and then mig- other migrant and refugee young people. Mm-hmm. And so how do migrant and refugee young people get in contact with uh, Coram? Does Coram advertise or approach them directly or do they have to seek you out? So, yeah, so with the Young Citizens Project, that's we've been funded to work in really specific areas. Yeah. So we're working in northwest London and southeast London. Mm-hmm. So if young people are interested in getting involved, they can um, find more information on the website and we'll be recruiting again for new, more trainers in the summer. Fantastic. Or over the spring, we'll be starting to recruit. We also have a, um, in the Migrant Children's Project, young people can code run training for professionals mm-hmm. that they'll be recruiting soon as well they're both based in london okay but the kind of other support we offer like the advocacy service or um advice for young people is, is across the country so people can yeah find out more information on our on our website about that as well fantastic and talahantaj um is there any message that you want to get across experiences you want to share or any message for anyone who's listening just don't give up mm-hmm. just put your dream on and focus and you will make it one day just keep going that's my message that's incredibly inspiring thank you so when i come to this country i thought like when i speak everyone gonna laugh at me but i learned that they're not gonna laugh at me Mm -hmm. they're interested in what i'm going to say so uh my message for everyone is speak and don't scare don't be shy Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak to you guys. And Amy as well, thank you for helping us organise this. Of course, we will share more information about Coram on our, on our website.
Um, that leaves me to say thank you very much, guys, for speaking to us. Best of luck as well with your future and your ambitions.